So, hey, good morning, everybody. Oh, look at that, somebody sitting in the front row, Chris and Donna, yeah, good to see you guys. Well, it's just unusual, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I should call it out, so anyway. Anyway, good to see you guys. My name's Tony Diekman, I think Erica said. I'm the site pastor here, and we're in the, the third week of a series we've called A Rising Tide, where we're looking at this value of accountability that we see in Scripture and how we who follow Jesus are called to invite accountability into our life. And today we're going to look at this topic of leadership. Uh, but before we do that, I'd ask if you would pray with me. Father, we gather in the name of Jesus, and I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be truly pleasing and acceptable in your sight. That my words would be your words, that all that I say, think, and do would bring honor and glory to your name and to your name alone. I pray that for Jesus' sake and all who hear. Amen. Well, it was in 1994. Maybe you guys have heard of this group called the Seekers. Anybody heard of this group? They're actually a local group. They were a local group here in the Chicagoland area, in the Oak Park area, actually. And it was a group of people. They were believers in God, and they, they were in this non-denominational church, and they were led by this woman down in Oak Park, and, and she believed she received revelations from God about things that would happen. And in 1954, she believed she got a word from God saying there was an apocalypse that was going to happen in 1955. But not to fear, because God was going to send a flying saucer and he was going to send aliens to Oak Park and rescue the church and those adherents who were faithful and they would escape the apocalypse. True story. And it was a media frenzy. I mean, people, you know, media were showing up in, in, in Oak Park to watch what would happen. And, and not just that, there were people actually within the community that infiltrated this group led by a psychologist to study this group, to see what would happen if what was predicted actually didn't come to pass. See, the leader of the group predicted that on December the 21st, 1954, this flying saucer would come to Oak Park and, and take those believers off this planet and thereby save them. And so, but there was this group of researchers inside this group that was waiting to see what they would do if, in fact, the apocalypse didn't happen and if, in fact, the saucer didn't show up. And, and so, what do you think happened? Well, I mean, you can, the apocalypse didn't happen, right? I mean, we know that. But what do you think happened within that group? What do you think they discovered within that group? What they were trying to figure out is what would the group do when it didn't happen? Would they, would they give up? believing in this leader and following this leader, or would they, like, change their belief? Well, after a couple of awkward hours, we're told that, you know, of no saucer showing up, right, the leader gets up and says, I have another word from God. God has revealed to me that because we have shed light on this and we have spread so much light that he has relented and he will not destroy and the apocalypse will not come. Praise God. And so what do you think they did? Well, some people left. <laughs> They're like, this is nuts. But quite a few people adjusted their belief and, and, and praised God and kept following this leader. And, and really, this whole study that this, this psychologist conducted and, and wrote about it actually in a book he actually began a new line of study in psychology, and it was the study of this cognitive dissonance. 
And cognitive dissonance happens within us, within human beings, when we have really closely held beliefs, tightly held beliefs, core beliefs, where we, we, we value something so much that when we do something or something happens around us that contradicts that belief, it creates this dissonance within us. It's like this incongruity, and it's really uncomfortable, and human beings will do a lot to make that go away. Right? We'll, we'll try and make that go away because it's uncomfortable. And we'll do that in a couple of different ways. We'll, we'll either dismiss the belief or we'll sort of rationalize the belief or rationalize the behavior. Like they sort of rationalize the behavior that it's like, well, the saucer didn't show up. The action really didn't happen. So how do I make this fit with my belief? Oh, I know. God was pleased and he's not going to destroy the earth. Ah, dissonance handled, right? And that's, that's, this all started out of this movement in Chicago. Fascinating discovery about how humanity works. But let me bring it into more of a mundane, sort of like everyday context that maybe you guys can understand. And because we do this to ourselves. It's not just other people that do this to us. We do this to ourselves. Let me give you an example. Say you really want to get in shape. Say you've really come to believe that you need to live a healthy lifestyle, that it is in your best interest, the interest of your family, that you live a healthy lifestyle. And you know that healthy people work out, they eat well, and they do so because they want to live a healthy lifestyle. And so you hire a trainer, right? You, start, you sign up for a marathon, you actually start running, and, and, and then you eat healthy, and everything starts changing, and your body changes, and your all your numbers change and things are going well and you love this. And then one day you go into the grocery store and you go down this aisle and you see this box of mint chocolate chip ice cream sandwiches. And in your mind you're going, you know, I've been working out hard, I've been doing this, and I, I, I can put these in my, box, in my bag and, or in my cart. And so you do, you reach in and you put them in your cart and you start, start to walk away and you're starting to feel this dissonance within you because reality is, when have you ever only eaten one box? <laughs> right? And so you start to have this like incongruity in you. It's like, I know healthy people, fit people, don't eat boxes of ice cream sandwiches. So what do I do? Well, I can say, I'll just put it back, right? And I go put it back, dissonance handled. I can adjust my behavior. That's one way to deal with the incongruity, this dissonance in my life. Or I could find other research, right? I could find a researcher that tells me that science has yet to prove that eating excess, excess amounts of ice cream is bad for you. I could adjust what I know, right? Or I could just lessen my belief, right? I, I could, the importance of my belief. I could just say, well, you know, life is short, and it's too short not to give yourself the pleasure of eating ice cream. I would much rather have a short life eating ice cream than a long, healthy life and not have ice cream. Right? We do that. All the time we do that when we feel this dissonance within us. Right? We do that in the church when it comes to spiritual dissonance. When we encounter something in God's Word that challenges us, right? And it's like, well, wait a minute. That's not what I believe. That's not what I was taught. But 
what do I do with that? Right? We'll rationalize it away and say, well, that was written 2,000 years ago, and today it's not the same thing. And, you know, and, or, or we'll talk to somebody and say, they really didn't mean that, did they? That's not what that means. Or, or we'll just, or maybe we'll change, and we'll, we'll, we'll seek and try and change. But oftentimes we try to rationalize it away. Let me, let me try and create a little cognitive dissonance here this morning, spiritually speaking. See if you can get my point. So in Timothy, 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul's writing to his young protege, and he says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, meaning that all this Scripture, all this that's written here, as Peter talks about it, is, is written by man. There's, there's human writings, but God is the inspiration behind it. This is inspired. We believe everything that is written in this book is true. We believe everything it teaches is true and is profitable for us. That's what Paul's telling Timothy. Everything that's written here is for our benefit because it's God's Word and it's intended to lead us into righteousness. Though we could be equipped for every good work if we obey this Word. Right? Now, here comes the dissonance. This is what Peter says, submit yourselves. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether emperor or governor, who are sent by him, by God, to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Submit yourselves to the governing authorities. And, and that word authority there means institution, human institution. Not just the leader, but the office. Right? I know, and then, what, so what do you do with that? This is all God's word. It's profitable for us. And yet it tells us that we're to submit to the authorities no matter what their party. How do you rationalize that away? Do you, do you change your belief? Do you, like, yeah, I should. I should stop thinking that about this person. I should stop saying that about this person. I should stop spewing this about this party or this group of people because God says, for God's sake, we're to submit. We're to put ourselves under their authority for Christ's sake. What do you do with that? Do you rationalize it away? Well, he didn't have that guy in mind. Really? God didn't foresee that? Something took him by surprise? Remember, Peter's writing this, and he's in prison, going to be crucified by the Roman authorities, and he's telling his followers to submit to them. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah says in chapter 29 that we're to pray for this country that they're in exile. He's, he's, he's instructing the Jewish people in exile in Babylon to pray for their welfare. Because if they prosper, prosper, so do you. So how do you deal with that? How, how do you submit to God's word? And I would say it's an invitation to submit to God's word. See, dissonance, this, and I would say within the church it's called guilt or conviction, right? Because we're, we read that God's word is written on our heart, the work of his law is written on our heart, meaning it's there, it convicts us when we transgress God's will. When we spew hateful things about our leaders and, and don't support them and, and really undermine them, in our heart somewhere, 
it's, it's convicting us. And so how do we deal with that? How, how, do we, how do we honor God in that? And I would say that dissonance that's created, that guilt that is, you're feeling is a good thing. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for spiritual growth to actually become more like Jesus. But if we're honest with each other, we won't do that by ourselves, right? We need to invite others into our lives to hold us accountable, and it's an opportunity for us to invite leadership into our lives within the church. Someone that can actually has been down the road further, who understands God's Word better, and can help us understand without rationalizing away the behavior or the belief or lessening the belief or finding somebody else somewhere elsewhere that'll, that'll help me feel better about what I believe. No, we need to invite spiritual leadership, godly leadership into our life to lead us to obey everything that Jesus has taught us to obey. Everything. And that's hard, which is why we need to invite good leaders into our lives. Leadership is important. We see it throughout God's Word. He's constantly calling people into leadership to lead his people well for their benefit. But as we saw in the story that was read earlier, it didn't always work out that way. Right? The, the people that God put in leadership didn't always lead well. Even the best of leaders failed. And David is considered to be the best of the kings. Every king after David was lesser David. David, a man who was considered to be after God's own heart, a man who desired God's heart, failed and failed miserably. I mean, you heard it read, right? I mean, here's the king. He should have been off waging war in the springtime because that's what kings do in the spring. They go to war. But not David. Why? Well, chances are this isn't the first time he saw the woman on the roof. Right? But this is the first time he actually did something about it. And, and chances are he didn't share that plan with anybody else. Right? He really didn't like to share it with anybody else because if he had, chances are they may have said something to him. And so all, all along, David's already rationalizing his behavior. He rationalized committing adultery, murdering, a woman's husband, and lying about it. He rationalized all that away, knowing God's law, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not commit a murder, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. It could be, couldn't be any clearer. David knew all this, but yet he rationalized it all away. He dealt with that dissonance within his heart. Like maybe, I don't know, it doesn't say, but maybe it was like, you know, I've been king a long time, and I've gone through a lot. Saul tried to kill me, you know, and I, I've worked my tail off, and I mean, my wife isn't happy with me, and don't I deserve a little happiness? Life is short, right? Don't I deserve a little ice cream? And so he rationalized it all away. Some horrific, horrific actions. And in this example, we get a great example of how not to lead. And a great example that no matter 
how good a leader you are, you are susceptible to failing and to falling and, and to rationalizing away things that you hold dear and believe fully, but you'll find yourself in a place where you're, you're doing something that you look and go, well, who is that guy? Which is why we need leaders in our life. Which is why David was blessed to have a leader, a spiritual leader in his life. See, the very next chapter, after David has sort of like rationalized it all away, in fact, here he goes and sends a messenger back to Joab, which was, remember, the leader that he had convinced to put Uriah out front. He said, don't feel bad, right? Soldiers die in war. He probably would have died anyway. You know, so don't feel bad, Joab, right? And so he's trying to make himself feel better and trying to make Joab feel better. What a horrible leadership example right there. And we need to pay attention to that. But then God gives him a blessing, and he sends a leader into his life, and it comes in chapter 12, and it comes in the person of Nathan the prophet. And this is what happens. It says, the Lord sent Nathan. How faithful and how good is God? The Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except a little ewe lamb he had bought. The man raised it and grew it up with him and with his children. He shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man's house, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, this man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. How do you think David felt at that moment? What do you think went on in David's heart and in his head at that moment? Right? Think about a time maybe when, when you knew what you had done or what you were doing was not God-honoring and God-pleasing, and you got caught. What did you do? How did you feel? Someone called you out. Maybe it was your wife. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was somebody you invited into your life to actually hold you accountable. And it came to light. How did you react? Did you push back? Did you push back and justify your behavior and, and get angry and, 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 like, nothing to do with that person again? Or... Did you humble yourself? Did you admit what it was that you had done? See, that's where David gives us a great example of leadership because that's exactly what David did. It said he confessed to Nathan and said, I have sinned against the Lord. 
and he repented and, and confessed his sin to Nathan. But he, think about it. He confessed his sin to the whole, the whole kingdom. This has been recorded. David confessed his sins not just in private, but very publicly as this is recorded. And he confessed it to God. And as a result, Nathan was restored, or David was restored. He he was still a horrible leader in this example. But yet it reveals the graciousness of God that if we are faithful and confess our sins, that he is just and will forgive us. See, we confess our sins because it's an opportunity to grow, to be more like Jesus, to understand that, that we are sinners and that we can't live up to that example. But yet God loves us, and he will give us an opportunity to confess. He'll give us this dissonance, this guilt, this conviction in our heart for our benefit if we'll take it, if we'll actually seek after leadership in our life to seek, actually look, live, and love like Jesus, if we truly believe that the way we live says a lot about what we believe, then we would invite leadership, somebody to lead us in this life so that we wouldn't have this horrible example for the whole world to see, something that undermines the church, undermines my life, wrecks my family. See, a lot of people, nobody, I don't believe in this room, wants to fail. I don't believe any of you came here this morning hoping to fail in, in following Jesus. No, I believe every one of you want to follow Jesus. None of you want to fail. But the truth is very few of us take any steps not to fail. And the step that we must take not to fail is to invite somebody into our life to help lead us, to teach us to obey everything that God has commanded us, not to make us feel better. We need the uncomfortable work of somebody to lead us and admonish us when we've gone off the path. That's why Solomon, David's son, writes this. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. Having a leader in our life call us out, admonish us, it's not comfortable. It hurts. David, I'm sure, when Nathan called him out, that had had to just like, whew, just completely undid him. But it, it, it was for his benefit. It can be trusted from someone who is following after God and who cares about you. Who cares not just about you, but your soul. Right? That's a friend. That's a true leader. Somebody who's seeking after God, not just for themselves, but for you. But he says, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Don't worry about it. Right? Life's short. I've seen your wife. Right? Don't worry about it. You're only human. Right? God will forgive you. Right? That's an enemy speaking to you. They multiply kisses to make you feel better. Right? It's like, it's, it's exactly like Paul says to Timothy again. He says, you know, a time will come where people will, get, will not put up with sound doctrine, not sound teaching. They don't want to be admonished. No. They'll gather around them a great number of teachers to tell them what their itching ears long to hear. And he's telling Timothy and us that to say, resist that urge to gather around you others to tell you what you want to hear. Because there are plenty of people out there you know, misery loves company, right? And we'll gather around ourselves people 
that'll make us feel better, when we need people that'll actually help us be better for Jesus' sake and for the sake of people that don't know him. That's what we need in our lives. We need people leading us. God has called people into the church to lead. In fact, he's called every one of you to lead. But he's also called every one of us, every single one of us, to obey spiritual leaders. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. We're to obey those leaders and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls, not just their, their, their reputation, but your souls. And they are accountable to God. Right? So if, if you're seeking to be a leader, understand you're held to a higher authority. And in this text, we realize that all authority comes from God. And so find someone, seek after someone. Yeah. Seek after someone who will be a person that, that understands the responsibility of leading and someone who actually cares about you. Not someone who's self-righteous, who, who judges you, but somebody who actually cares about you and will tell you the hard things. Not joyfully, but out of love, because they care about you. And, and the writer of Hebrews says, seek out after those people and obey them, because it is good for you. It is good for every one of us to have someone in our life to hold us accountable why I love this church. I don't serve here alone. I serve with other leaders that hold me accountable. I invite people into my life to hold me accountable, that my life actually, you know, it doesn't know, that it's, it's more consistent, that there isn't this big dissonance, and, and I believe and trust these people that if they see it, they're going to call it out. And I desire that, as uncomfortable as that is because I know that I'm accountable to God. But see, here's the thing I said just a minute ago. We're all accountable to God because we are all disciples and we have all been given this mandate to go and teach others to obey. Teaching is a leadership role. And you have been given the authority to go and teach, to lead other people. But in order to do that, you must be willing to be led yourself. This isn't something we do for our benefit. This isn't something I do in a vacuum. It's not something you do in a vacuum, which is why we say small groups. Small groups, small groups, small groups. Because we remind small group leaders that they're accountable and that they're to look after your souls and, and they're to, to help one another. And you're there to help the leader. And we're there to grow more like Jesus because when we do, the whole tide rises. And the light of Christ shines brighter as we actually seek to look and live and love more like him. But we're not going to do that by ourselves. And, and don't you think God knows that too? Which is why he's put leaders in the church. And, and he's calling us to submit to that leadership for our benefit and for the benefit of those people that are yet to know him. Leadership is a biblical, biblical mandate. And it's one we're called to, to follow, as hard as that may be for us. Harder for some than others. But together, as we do, as we hold one another accountable, because we hold our leaders accountable, it's not just our leaders holding us accountable, but us holding our leaders accountable, that the tide rises. And we do so with the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ.
Come back next week as we finish up how we do this. Come back next week. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning and your word that instructs us and challenges us and humbles us and stops us in our tracks. Father, I pray this morning that you would give us a spirit of calm, a spirit of clarity here this morning that we could sit at your feet and and listen to your words and not run or justify or rationalize away your word. Father, give us a spirit of humility here this morning and wisdom to follow after you. Father, we confess to you this morning that we are resistant to that idea. We're resistant to the idea of submitting our lives to anyone. Father, we pray this morning that you would create in us a clean heart, that you would search us and know our anxious thoughts and lead us in the way everlasting. I pray that for Jesus' sake. Amen.